0: Shabbat shalom everybody. I always kind of rushed to grab this microphone and start speaking because I just I just hate the uncomfortable Silences if I don't get up here fast enough See that's something you guys need to understand about me is I, I hate I have this huge aversion to making people uncomfortable It's been like it's been detrimental to my life in like little like annoying ways like whenever I go to a restaurant, I never really get what I want because you know, like I go to my wife, and she like tells me, "Listen, I want extra pickles over here, and can you make a little salt and some lime on the side?" I'm like, "Don't, don't, don't bother them, don't, don't bother." So, so I never ask for what I want, and then if they then they always bring something out wrong for me, and I never send it back because I don't, I don't want to inconvenience them. So I just eat, I just eat it. <laughs> so, I mean, like, let me. It gets worse. I mean, one time I was riding the bus, and I wound up getting off at the wrong stop because I didn't want to trouble the driver by ringing the little bell. <laughs> so, if I go and. Yeah, if, if I go into a, a little store, I feel like I have to buy something because it would be rude for me to leave without getting something. <laughs> One time a coworker called me Jeff instead of Jared, and I didn't want to embarrass her by correcting her. She called me Jeff for the next 10 years. <laughs> it wasn't so st- I mean, was I supposed to I couldn't tell her now. I mean, she finally figured it out on the day I quit my job, and she signed a farewell card for me. <laughs> point is, I don't like to make people uncomfortable. But today, I am going to break my own rule. Because today, we are going to study a man whose story makes many people uncomfortable. So all year long, I've been doing this sermon series, studying the different characters of the Bible. And we've been in the book of 1 Samuel for a while now, because there are so many great characters in this book. So, so far, we've talked about Samuel, we've talked about Saul, and we've talked about David. But today, I want to talk about about Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Now Jonathan is a controversial character for some people. His story is an interesting story. It's a provocative story. And it can be an intimidating story because of the complexity of the relationship that existed between Jonathan and David. There is some intimidation here because the magnitude of the love that these two men had for each other leaves some people awestruck and other people uncomfortable, because they were tied together, they were knit together, and there are statements made about these two men that are difficult to exegete within the current complexities and inhibitions of American society. David says things about Jonathan that two guys usually don't say it to each other. Uh, He says about Jonathan that his love to him was better than the love of a woman and when people read that they don't know how to process that so when they get to that part of the bible they just skip over it and they leave it alone you know there there are certain things that people just don't like to talk about they just they just don't go there and yet on the other hand there are others who have taken this text and misappropriated it to fit their own agenda the uh, LGBTQ community have taken Jonathan and made him into a representative for their cause, misinterpreting this text and using it to justify their own sins as if God had bestowed favor over that one particular area of weakness. This unfortunately seems to be the state of Jonathan within the Christian church today. He's either a poster boy for sin or someone to be ignored. And I think that both extremities are missing the point And that's a real shame because to misconstrue or to disregard Jonathan is to miss out on on the remarkable power of his story and the amazing lessons that it teaches us about love. So let me just get this out of the way for anyone who might be confused. Compared to most other countries, America is a rigid society where open displays of affection are not approved of, especially between men. So, modern-day conceptions of masculinity and the expectations of toughness that we demand of boys have left men isolated and unable to express their feelings, especially to each other. And so when we read about two men who openly expressed their love for each other in such a bold and unapologetic way, the only way we can understand it is in the context of a homosexual relationship. Let me make it clear that any apparent homoeroticism in this story is a product of our dirty minds and hang-ups, not what's in the text. Exactly. Nothing in the Bible suggests that the relationship between Jonathan and David was sexual. Nothing in the Bible suggests that their relationship was romantic. What the text does say is that this, let's see if I can do something here. What's going on with my clicker? What's up here? I don't know. What, by, what the text does say was that the soul of David was sorry that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This is a spiritual connection, not a physical one. And so many people miss that point. The church is mired in centuries of sexual repression, and the secular world is so steeped in sexual sin that between the two of them, everything seems erotic, and this has prevented the world from being fully blessed by the example of the love between David and Jonathan. So today, I want to look past all the controversy and misunderstanding and see this story for what it is. It's a wonderful tale of a deep friendship and covenant love and see what lessons we can learn from the example of Jonathan. Another one bites the dust, I guess. So before I jump in, I wanna share something that makes me believe that this message I'm about to give is intended by God. So if you're very familiar with your Jewish calendar, you'll know that last night was a special Shabbat. Last night was a Shabbat that fell on the same day as Rosh Kodesh, the new moon. It's a convergence of two special days. So Rosh Kodesh, so again, Rosh Kodesh Sameach and Shabbat Shalom, right? Now, I had decided to preach on Jonathan weeks ago, but just because that was where I was in my sermon series. But this week, as I was doing my research, I discovered that in Jewish tradition, on the Shabbat, that falls on the same day as Rosh Kodesh, the scheduled Haftorah portion for that day is taken out and replaced. Guess what's being replaced by? The story of Jonathan and David. So I don't know why, but I believe God wants me to preach this message, and that something I say today is going to touch the heart of someone who needs to hear it. So let's dive in. We're going to jump around a bit, but the relevant verses for now are from the book of Samuel, chapter 18, verse 1, if you could put that slide up. now it came about that when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. As I said before, we know how the church views this story, and we know how the world views this story, but this is a synagogue, so don't you think we should, we should know what Judaism has to say about this story? So I want you to go to the next slide. Perkei vote, The Ethics of Our Father from the Talmud, teaches us that whenever love depends on some selfish end, when the end passes away, the love passes away. But if it does not depend on some selfish end, then it will never pass away. What love did not depend on a selfish end? This was the love of David and Jonathan. So this teaching from Talmud, we discovered that rather than being an outright sin or a taboo subject, the love that existed between David and Jonathan is ranked amongst the highest of values in Judaism. Throughout the Bible, only the love of God for his children Israel is described with the same depth of emotion as Jonathan's love for David. In fact, I will argue that Jonathan's love for David is a mirror of God's love for us and an example of how we should strive to love each other. So what made Jonathan's love so great? I think there are a few reasons. First. Jonathan had the faith to love God. So let's turn the pages of our Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Let me set the scene for you. Everybody knows about how David slew Goliath and how he defeated tens of thousands of Philistines, but before David ever appears in the Bible, the greatest warrior in all of Israel was Jonathan, the son of Saul. So when Saul was made king, oh, there he did it for me. So when Saul was made king, he was commissioned by God to defeat all of Israel's enemies. We read about how Saul waged war against the Moabites, and the Edomites, and the Ammonites, and, and that, but now Saul, he's fighting the big one, the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. And the Philistines, these weren't Canaanites like the rest of Israel's enemies. Next slide, please. They were an invading force from the sea, bringing with them on, on their ships the most advanced weaponry and technology the ancient world had to offer. So with their iron weapons and their wheeled chariots and their seemingly endless numbers, the Philistines were an overwhelmingly powerful foe. So the Philistines swept into Israel and they occupied and they oppressed the land. And we read that when Saul was rallying the people of Israel together to make war against invaders, that there were no blacksmiths in Israel. See, the Philistines had removed all of the blacksmiths from the land so that the Jews could not forge weapons for themselves. So when Saul gathers his army, he finds he has only 600 men with him, and the only men who had weapons were him and Jonathan. Everybody else had like a a shovel or something. Next slide, please. Meanwhile, we read that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was King Saul, I would be feeling extremely discouraged by this situation. That's not how Jonathan is feeling. See, in chapter 14, we read that, One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised ones. Perhaps Adonai will work for us. For nothing restrains Adonai from delivering, whether by many or by few. See, while all of Israel, including the king, were hiding and praying that the Philistines would, would, would just go away, Jonathan takes a look at this massive host and says, I think I can take them." Now, this is not a Gideon situation here. No angel appears to uh, to Jonathan and assures him of victory. Jonathan has no reason to believe that God intends to perform a miracle on this day. All Jonathan has is the knowledge that it was God who drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. It was God who tore down the walls of Jericho. It was God who empowered the judge Shamgar to strike down 600 Philistines single-handed with an ox goad. It was God who gave Samson the strength to kill 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And that the same God who had delivered and defended Israel for all those years was still here. God will never withdraw his hand from Israel. And Jonathan walked in absolute confidence of that promise. Jonathan had nothing to fear from the Philistines because he knew that God wanted to deliver Israel and that God wanted to work through someone. See, there are times when God will open up the ground to swallow your enemies, but far more often, God wants to work through you. So Jonathan remembered the part in Leviticus where it says, five of you will chase a hundred, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Because he just walks right into the Philistine camp and just starts striking men down left and right, and strikes down 20 men. And the Philistines can't understand what's happening. He's just one man. But then terror begins to spread through the camp and through the fields and through all those thousands of troops. See, this isn't the terror of just one man or even of an army. This terror comes from the Lord. And God even sends an earthquake to shake the ground, to terrorize even the outposts of the Philistine army. And Saul hears the commotion going on, and he and his troops rush over to see what's happening. But when they arrive, he finds that the Philistines are in a panic. And they've fallen on each other, slaying one another with their swords. Because when we fight against the enemy with God's strength, not our own, God will turn the weapons of the enemy against him. So the Philistine army is in disarray. And with just a few hundred unarmed men, Jonathan and Saul set the Philistines to flight. And so the day was won, not because Jonathan was an invincible warrior, but because he had the unwavering trust in God they formed the foundation of his identity and this is why Jonathan was able to, to love so deeply Yeshua teaches us that the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself in that order See love is like a pyramid And love for God forms the base of that pyramid if you have a strong foundation in the, of, in the Lord You can build powerful relationships with others that will last but if your base is wobbly, nothing you build can stand. So if you're struggling with love right now or you're struggling to be loving to others, check your foundations. Build up a relationship with God first and watch the rest follow. Jonathan has that powerful foundation built upon absolute trust in God and is that foundation that allows him to love so greatly and so faithfully. And Jonathan will need those strong foundations because his love for David will be tested. But it will pass because, next slide please, Jonathan has the self-confidence to love himself. Not that one. There we go. If the first tier of this pyramid is love for God, the second tier is love for yourself. You cannot love others if you do not love yourself first. Now, when I say self-love, I'm not talking about narcissism or vanity. I'm talking about a healthy confidence in who you are in God. This is the kind of self-love that Jonathan has. If he didn't have it, there was no possible way he could have been friends with David because Jonathan and David were the most unlikely of friends. Not because they didn't have a lot in common, but because there were so many obstacles that threatened to come in between them. Let's turn to Samuel chapter 18 and see what I mean. So after joining King Saul's inner circle, David begins to distinguish himself in Israel. He becomes Saul's most effective military commander and quickly becomes a beloved hero to the people. And when Saul hears of the praise being heaped on David, he just becomes jealous of David. He says, What more now does David lack but the kingdom? And Saul's jealousy grows worse because he realizes that he no longer has the Ruach of Adonai in him. The Holy Spirit has left him, and now it resides in David. And now Saul is no longer simply jealous, now he's afraid. Of David. He's afraid that David will take everything that he has and leave him with nothing. But the irony here is that Saul was not the one who had to worry. Yes, yeah, Samuel anointed David as, a, as the next king. But that's the whole thing. He would be the next king. There was no set time when this transfer would happen. God never intended for David to violently overthrow Saul and depose him as king. God allowed Saul's reign to come to a natural end. David did not replace Saul as king. He replaced Jonathan as the crown prince. If this were a normal story, it should have played out very differently. You know, in any other story, it would have been Jonathan who felt shamed when a, when a shepherd boy killed a giant that a prince could not. It should have been Jonathan who became jealous when David replaced him as Israel's greatest defender. It should have been Jonathan who became angry when David married his sister and became a member of the royal family. And it should have been Jonathan who became afraid when David became Saul's right-hand man. But this is not a normal story, and Jonathan is not a normal man. In the face of all these obstacles, of all these threats to Jonathan's ego and his future, how does Jonathan react to David? Let's look at Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4. David has just slain the giant Goliath, and he's explaining to Saul who he is. And Jonathan is there with his father, and he's meeting David for the first time. Now think about this in context. For the last how you know you know so for the last however many days this arrogant giant has been insulting the Israelites and daring any of them to challenge him to a fight. Why didn't Jonathan go fight him? When I mean, we know Jonathan has the courage to do it. If he wasn't afraid of 30,000 chariots, he wasn't going to be afraid of, like, one tall guy. You know, Jonathan didn't challenge Goliath because he was in tune with the will of God, and he knew that he was not the one meant to defeat the giant. But then David arrives, and he slays Goliath, and now Jonathan is meeting him for the first time, and Jonathan is still so in tune with the will of God that he can practically see the anointing on David. Jonathan takes one look at David, and he knows exactly who David is. And his soul becomes knit together with David's, and he he knows who David is and what he will become. And how does Jonathan react to this? How does he react to knowing that David will become the king and Jonathan will not? He reacts with the same grace of another John much later. When John the Immerser is asked about Yeshua, he says, you know, that what's happening is that they, his disciples have come to John. They're saying, there's this guy, Yeshua, and he's, and he's baptizing people, too. You know, that's, that's your thing, right? John, John says, I am not the Messiah, but rather, I'm sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the best man rejoices when he stands and hears the bridegroom's voice. So now my joy is complete. He must increase while I must decrease. The same thing happens again with David and Jonathan. When when he meets David, Jonathan takes off his royal garments, and he dresses David in his own clothing. He takes off his princely armor, and he puts it on David. See, David couldn't wear Saul's armor, but Jonathan's fit him perfectly. Jonathan transfers his position and his place as the next king of Israel to David, and he does it with complete grace. How was Jonathan able to do that? How is he able to overcome the jealousy and the fear and the hatred that poisoned his father's soul? Because Jonathan has the confidence to love himself for who he is. His identity is not caught up with being a prince or being the most popular or being the next king. Jonathan finds his identity in God and that can never change. So Jonathan has built up his pyramid. He has the faith to love God the confidence to love himself and now he has the selflessness to love others unconditionally. So there's something unusual that most people don't notice when they read the story of David and Jonathan. For all the powerful imagery of friendship and devotion that the story invokes, upon closer reading, it seems that Jonathan may have loved David more than David loved Jonathan. So when we first read, we read that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. The thing is, this amazing love doesn't seem to be reciprocated. It says nothing about David's soul, David's soul being knit to Jonathan's or their souls being knit together. It just says Jonathan loved David. We don't know how David felt about him. And this repeats over and over again through the Jonathan and David narrative. Again and again, when speaking about their love, it's always Jonathan who loves David. It's not completely one side. David has a few expressions of affection. When they part ways for the last time, David weeps for his friend. And when Jonathan dies, David mourns for him in the, in the Song of the Bow. But the expressions aren't nearly as powerful as those of Jonathan for David. So what's happening here? Is this, is this, is this a specter of homoeroticism raising its ugly head here again? Is this a case of unrequited love between a guy with a crush and another guy who just likes him as a friend? See, I don't think so. And I think the reason can be found in the phrase. Benefesh. The soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. That phrasing only appears in one other place in Torah when describing the love between Jacob and his youngest son, Benjamin. Genesis 44 tells us that Jacob's soul is bound up with Benjamin's soul. And there's a reason why this love isn't reciprocated, because it's not the love between two lovers or two friends, it's the kind of love that a parent has for their child. It's an unconditional love and it's a boundless love and it's a love that can never be fully returned. I mean, I love my baby son over there, but he's so little I'm not sure he actually knows who I am. But it doesn't matter that he can't tell me that he loves me or that he wakes me up at night or they spit up on my shirt right after I changed or he pooped on me when I changed his diaper. I love him anyway and nothing can change that. My love for him isn't dependent on anything. I love him because I do. And this is the love that Jonathan has for David. This is a love that the Talmud speaks of, an unconditional love. When David says that Jonathan's love for him was greater than the love of a woman, it makes sense. Look at the relationships David had with women woman in his life. David had multiple marriages that ended poorly. The woman that loved him wanted him for sex, or for status, or for wealth. But when those things were attained or they went away, they stopped loving him. But Jonathan doesn't want anything from David. He's not looking to gain anything from this relationship. Jonathan loves David because he does. And so Jonathan's pyramid is complete. Jonathan was able to love David unconditionally because he could love himself unconditionally. And he had the confidence to love himself because he knew who he was in God. Congregation, I think we have a lot to learn from Jonathan. In Jonathan, we see a mirror of the love that Messiah Yeshua has for us, a love that is unconditional, a love that is self-sacrificing to the point of death, and a love that will never end. And in Jonathan, we have an example of how we are to love Yeshua and each other in turn. Jonathan knew how to love with his entire soul. He loved with his whole being, and he loved unconditionally. Shabbat shalom, everyone.